Okay, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to AR204 Grid Power Relations. Um, it's a pity that we still cannot uh, do this uh, class or lecture talk face-to-face, -face, uh, given the uh, COVID-19 restrictions and all the challenges. Um, so, but uh, fortunately, we uh, can now, at least for on-campus students, uh, we can have face-to-face -face seminars, discussions um, on Geelong campus and abroad campus. Uh, so I look forward to uh, meeting some of you, um, not all of you, um, because I will not be able to travel to abroad uh, because I'm Geelong-based. Now, uh, week one uh, is uh, the introduction, uh, as I mentioned uh, before uh, this started. Um, first, let's look at um, the teaching stuff. Um, it's, firstly, I'm, uh, my name is Cheng Xin Pan. Um, please call me uh, Cheng or Cheng Xin, uh, whichever you, you prefer. Uh, I'm the unit chair of uh, this unit and also the lecturer and uh, tutor for Wong Pound and uh, Cloud Campuses. Uh, I'm an associate professor of international relations. I've been here for um, 16 years uh, at Deakin. So um, that's, uh, this is my uh, first ever academic job after I finished my PhD at the Australian National University. Uh, before that, I did my uh, bachelor's and master's at uh, Peking University in Beijing. So that was a, a long time ago. Um, so my, my experience um, um, cut across, uh, obviously, Australia and China. Um, and my uh, long-term, uh, long-standing research interests, uh, uh, including U.S.-China relations, Australian-China relations. So basically, the great power relations um, in general. So this has been uh, a subject of my interest for a long time. So I, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, share my thoughts uh, with you and uh, to learn from you and to discuss the ongoing challenges and um, tensions as well as possibility for cooperation um, into the future between the major powers. And also uh, we uh, have uh, Simon Hughes uh, as the tutor for Broad Campus. Um, Simon is um, a, a PhD student uh, in our school, uh, the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, he's been a very experienced uh, tutor uh, in in the school so um, I'm sure uh, the board um, students uh, will be looking forward to uh, meeting him uh, tomorrow uh, at these uh, two seminars so uh, here we have the our contact details so please free to contact um, us um, if you are broad-based, uh, Simon would be your first point of contact. And, uh, but of course, uh, I will always be um, uh, open to any uh, discussion, to any um, contact. If you have any questions, uh, you would like to contact me directly. Um, so uh, this is uh, who we are. And... Let me do this uh, full screen. I think it's um, um, doesn't seem to respond. Okay. Now, uh, first, briefly, the uh, some of our resources, uh, assessment items for this unit. Uh, you probably are already familiar with uh, the, the content, uh, the requirements, etc. 
but it just uh, was repeating uh, on Cloud Deacon side. You can access the uh, static guide, unit guide, uh, the reading list, as well as uh, the lecture notes, uh, the PowerPoint slides, and also the recordings of this class and online discussions, as well as uh, uh, Twitter feed. Um, if you uh, check check out the uh, hashtag AR204, you can see what's, uh, what's happening uh, in the Twitter sphere about this unit. Um, I welcome everybody to, um, if you are a Twitter user, to tweet something you think might be relevant uh, to your um, colleagues, to your uh, fellow students, uh, to the, this unit uh, in general. And um, so that would be a terrific way of interacting with each other and help us learn um, things that we might otherwise not be able to, um, to hear about. So please feel free to do that. And obviously this, uh, uh, the link to uh, this class meeting uh, every Monday. And assessment, uh, there are two uh, assessment items. Uh, both are 2,000 words. Um, one is a research, uh, research essay. Um, another one is, uh, we call it research and writing exercise. There are two components uh, in the second assessment. Um, the first part uh, is based on your reflection of your seminar contributions uh, or your online discussion uh, experiences. So the, the details uh, can be found on, um, on the, uh, in the unit guide. Uh, so you can, basically you can um, go to the Cloud Deacon site to see what's available there. And the discussion forum, um, the seminars and online discussion are not assessed as such, uh, but because I think the uh, uh, such important um, tool and resources for everybody's uh, learning, I, I think it's uh, important that we participate as much as we can uh, so that other people can learn from, from you. So without this, I think, yeah, we'll be um, lacking a crucial part of the resources and the learning experience. So that's why I urge everybody to uh, participate uh, in uh, seminars or online discussions or both even. Um, so basically, um, uh, on campus-based students can still uh, post uh, messages online as well uh, in the discussion forum. So everybody is welcome. Um, now, uh, here is what we um, will generally cover for this unit. Uh, we, although it's termed grid power relations, uh, we are going to focus particularly on the United States and China. Um, we'll talk about this, uh, why uh, we are doing this uh, very shortly. Um, we, we talk about these two countries uh, primarily um, in terms of how they conduct their foreign policy, um, what kind of foreign policy traditions uh, driving their contemporary foreign policy making and explain uh, why uh, they they do things uh, the way they do, and especially in the contemporary period. And we are not looking at um, these two countries uh, individually. Obviously, uh, we instead mainly focus on their bilateral interactions because uh, that's uh, increasingly what matters for global politics. Uh, we'll go back to, to the history of their relationships and as well as contemporary, uh, the multifaceted um, interactions uh, between the two powers, uh, their 
cooperation, uh, increasing competition, and even the prospect of conflict. Um, and then uh, we will talk about the uh, what this means for, for the region, um, increasingly uh, referred to as the Indo-Pacific region, and also uh, the implications for Australia's uh, strategy, foreign policy, um, how we should deal with these two uh, superpowers, uh, both of which are incredibly important uh, to Australia's uh, future, to our peace, uh, security and the prosperity. And apart from this uh, more or less empirical aspects of this uh, unit, we also are going to discuss the uh, theoretical conceptual elements uh, about uh, great power relations, uh, how we can best understand uh, such relations and which theories, which conceptual frameworks are best suited to give us a better understanding. So yeah, there's plenty to, um, to talk about. Okay, uh, sorry, uh, this doesn't seem to be, let, let me, yeah, for some reason, um, this screen doesn't uh, let, let me, okay. Share this one. Can you, can you see the? Uh, yes, we can. Okay, now can you see the change? Okay, uh, sorry about that. Um, now if you, uh, if you missed this, yeah, these are uh, on, Cloud Deacon site, uh, so you can download the uh, PowerPoint. Now let's move on. Um, why study this unit, uh, basically? Um, I'm sure yeah, you all are uh, understanding uh, why uh, you want to study this unit. Um, so you may have different reasons. Uh, uh, let me sum some up uh, some of the reasons might be uh, you might have already thought about um, some others uh, you might have not um, we know the great power relations uh, have always been the uh, the main show of international relations although um, II is much more than great power relations obviously uh, you have studied uh, transnational uh, activism or uh, non-state actors and uh, other less traditional, uh, traditionally focused issues. Uh, nevertheless, the interactions and the relationships uh, between grid powers are still perhaps the most um, important element of uh, how great, uh, how international relations take shape, what kind of uh, world order we are going to see uh, in the future. Uh, so in a way, uh, if we look back at history, uh, we know <laughs> World War I, World War II, uh, they were fought among those major powers. And those uh, world wars uh, have, left uh, incredible legacy for uh, international politics and indeed for the world in general. And of course, the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, again, uh, dominant uh, much of the second half of the last century. And so the way the world order uh, has um, evolved is in close, uh, is closely linked to those uh, grid power interactions, whether in peace or in war or in cold war. And uh, if you also look at uh, the UN, uh, many international institutions, they are very often underpinned by grid power politics. 
almost without exception, um, the most influential great powers um, uh, are the initiators and the most influential actors in the UN or in other international institutions. And also, I are theorizing uh, uh, if we look at uh, international relations theory, whether it's uh, realism, liberalism, or uh, other isms, uh, very often you can see those uh, theories have a particular focus or bias uh, towards great powers. Um, so in this sense, um, great power relations is essential to um, to IR as both as practice and as theory. And you may wonder why uh, we focus on US-China relations. I think uh, unless you have been uh, living under a rock, uh, I'm sure you are not, um, you must have heard a lot about US-China competition right now. Uh, certainly uh, the uh, the temperature has been uh, rising uh, over the years uh, since the uh, the Trump administration came to power, and uh, even with the election of Joe Biden, uh, this the relationship between these two countries continue to be hiding in a more uh, tense direction. And if we read the U.S. Um, major policy documents, for example, the national uh, security strategy and the national defense uh, strategy, they both talk about the major threat or um, major challenger. It's no longer terrorism. Uh, it's great powers, particularly uh, China and Russia. So for the United States, um, for the policymakers in Washington, uh, China has become the main focus. So when the United States focused on something, almost inevitably, uh, the whole discipline, the whole field will start to shift their focus. Um, as you may know, um, previously it was the war on terror and so many of us uh, started uh, terrorism, uh, the Middle East, and now uh, the focus has uh, been shifting back to great power politics, uh, which is arguably the, um, the stock in trade of uh, world affairs. So that's the um, traditional uh, flavor of international relations. And needless to say, uh, US-China relations uh, have been the most uh, important or consequential bilateral relationship uh, in the world. Um, well, we may, uh, you may argue there may be other uh, important bilateral relationships such as uh, between uh, China and the EU, between the United States and uh, the European Union, and so on and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, Many of those relationships are conditioned on U.S.-China relations. So that's why uh, this is um, our focus. And also by that nature, uh, because this is our focus, this is also the focus of many other uh, scholars. Then in this sense, um, we, uh, we are basically aligning ourselves uh, with the uh, the field uh, as a whole. Um, another um, aspect is the U.S.-China relations uh, give you the whole package of international relations issues. Uh, you may be interested in environmental issues, uh, in human rights, uh, in uh, transnational corporations, uh, in the North-South um, issues, in, in developmental issues, etc., or in conventional security strategy issues. If you look at uh, U.S.-China relations, these elements are all there. So this relationship is not just about um, the uh, bilateral relationship. 
it's affecting so many global transnational issues we are talking about. So without the um, involvement or, or collaboration of these two countries, uh, we cannot meaningfully talk about uh, fighting climate change or talking about the, uh, the fight against terrorism even. And of course, the human rights issues are at the heart of US-China um, tensions as well, uh, as we will see in the places like Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang, etc. So yeah, this unit basically gives you a whole package of um, your IR uh, interests. And another less important but still relevant aspect is, I guess, uh, these are the topic, uh, the language many strategic analysts uh, are talking about. So uh, this is the, basically the, the comfort zone of um, many of us and many, many commentators, uh, think tankers. And this unit will help uh, give you uh, this, um, allow you to enter the dialogue, the conversation. Uh, you can uh, better understand what they are talking about. Uh, because increasingly uh, the media, um, the online blogs, etc., are filled uh, with the talk about U.S.-China competition. And the last but not least, um, the we are having this uh, Australian connection. Uh, as you can see from these two quarterly essays uh, by Hugh White. Um, the, uh, these two quadrilises uh, basically sum up the uh, position of Australia, the, sometimes the awkward, uh, the difficult dilemma between uh, choosing um, either uh, the United States or uh, China. So this is not something we can um, be indifferent to. Uh, this is in fact very much uh, part of Australia's foreign policy uh, or future. So in general, uh, if you are not interested in global um, in great power relations and particularly in US-China relations, um, certainly the US-China relationship uh, is interest, interested in us. So that's why uh, there's no way of avoiding uh, this topic. Um, can I ask somebody to uh, mute yourself because I can hear the background music? Okay. Um, now, what is uh, a great power? Um, we can see a leader. Uh, we can we we, we can know uh, who Donald Trump is, uh, who Xi Jinping is, but we haven't seen a great power per se. So this uh, raises this kind of question of how to conceptualize a great power. Uh, how do we know uh, when we see one? Um, so this is the basic task of a definition uh, or conceptual uh, exercise. Now, the term great power uh, emerged uh, in the period of um, the so-called Congress of Vienna uh, in the uh, early part of uh, the 19th century when the five, uh, five great powers, uh, the Austrian Empire, uh, France, Prussia, Russia, and the Great Britain, uh, they were basically dominating um, European international politics. So, this uh, was the, uh, the first uh, instance of the, the great powers uh, emerging as um, we know it. There are some definitions, um, you can find others, um, but yes, this uh, too uh, may give you uh, a sense of what a great power is. Um, the first one, uh, great power is 
one which is capable of preserving its independence against any other single power. So that's a measurement of your ability to uh, preserve yourself, uh, your survival, your independence against other powers. So basically, um, you are at least a peer of uh, other any single power. Uh, another definition is the great powers um, are by definition organizations for power, and the ultimate test uh, for great powers is the ability to wage war. So, as you can see, war and great powers are linked together. Um, but AGP Taylor also said. Um, Ultimately, yeah, the, the grip house, the capacity uh, of grip power is measured by its ability to wage war, but ultimately, um, the credibility of that grip power is not have to fight a war. So that uh, seems to make sense to me because uh, if you are a really grip power, then uh, probably other countries will. Um, will show some respect uh, to you and will not uh, dare to challenge you so that you do not have to fight a war. Uh, there are some other similar concepts. Um, superpower, um, this is basically to uh, separate a special category from the general grid powers. Uh, this was um, used by William Fox to uh, refer to the United States and the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. So these were two superpowers at that time. So they were much more powerful than other great powers. Another term, uh, hegemon or uh, hegemon. Um, yeah, this comes from the Greek word um, uh, in the in the Greek um, sense. Uh, it, its meaning uh, is related to leadership. Uh, today, hegemon has uh, been given more of this kind of a negative connotation, but the original uh, meaning was uh, leadership. So as you can see, yeah, there are some overlaps uh, between superpower and hegemon. Uh, books obviously need to be very powerful, but superpower is primarily referring to the uh, objective uh, measurement of its power. Well, hegemon has this more uh, subjective, more legal and institutional uh, element to it uh, because it's basically a, um, an achieved superpower uh, whose uh, legitimacy and whose authority has been accepted by other powers. So not every superpower uh, is necessarily uh, respected or accepted by other powers, but hegemon um, seems to have achieved such dominance uh, to be able to reinforce the, the rules uh, which uh, is operating in the international system. And obviously that rule is very often uh, self uh, serving uh, for the hegemon. So that's why it may have evolved into this kind of a negative concept. So uh, by the way, any, any questions? Uh, if you have any questions, yeah, please feel free to, uh, to raise that uh, in the chat room. Now, these are a few concepts. Um, and we talk about uh, measurement. So how to measure a great power. Uh, there are different uh, approaches, different ways of um, looking at uh, a, power, a country to see whether it is a great power or not. Uh, the first approach is broadly the materialist approach to look at the um, more or less objective measurable criteria. So for example, how big the country is in terms of its land mass, uh, its territory. And 
so when we talk about territory, uh, who, who is the big, biggest country in the world in terms of territory? Um, yeah, from, yeah, Russia, yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, so in terms of the territory size, the territorial size, it's Russia, then Canada, um, etc. So, um, but ter territory is not the only uh, measurement. Um, Russia, obviously, today is not a, a, as powerful as uh, as China, although it's um, territorially uh, bigger. There is also the measurement of population, uh, the economic input, output, uh, and its military capacities. So. For example, uh, the number of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, air aircraft carriers, uh, missiles, etc. Um, let me let me uh, refer to a question asked by Deck. Um, would you suggest the U.S.-China relationship uh, is in some way a battle to become uh, the hegemon today? Uh, that's a very good question. Mm. Yeah, many scholars uh, would think so. Uh, this seems to be uh, the dominant uh, interpretation of the nature of U.S.-China relationship, uh, especially from the U.S. perspective, uh, because the United States uh, saw itself as the um, hegemon of the world after the end of the Cold War, and the rise of China seems to uh, post challenge uh, to that status. Uh, so, from the U.S. point of view, uh, this is very much about uh, who will call the shot, uh, who will uh, become the leader of the world um, into the future. Uh, from China's point of view, uh, it certainly has some kind of anti-hegemonic element to it. Uh, it is not buying the dominance of the United States, particularly in its own region. Um, in that sense, China is a challenger. Uh, but whether China is uh, hoping to become a hegemon itself uh, is, is debatable. Um, certainly, China wants to become a dominant power in its own region. Um, but it depends on uh, oil. <clears throat> on your perspective, whether China has the uh, other ambitions to expand into the whole world. Um, so some say yes, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is certainly more ambitious and uh, it's expanding into the, the backyard of the United States, uh, Europe, etc. But uh, in terms of the, its intention, whether China wants to replicate the United States, uh, that's, uh, that, that's another approach uh, when we want to measure great powers. So that's the um, educational approach, uh, the intentions, uh, your purpose, uh, your ambition, or who you think you are. So these are uh, relevant and they do matter in terms of uh, how a country would evolve uh, into into a power, into a great power. So the educational aspect, uh, we talk about soft power. Mm. Although China seems to be uh, catching up very quickly uh, in terms of hard power, uh, in terms of economic, uh, military capacities, but in soft power terms, it's probably not uh, a great power. Certainly not a superpower, uh, because the, uh, as you may have seen, the uh, opinion polls uh, around the world, uh, very few uh, people uh, would look to China, for example, uh, would uh, trust uh, in Xi Jinping's leadership. So China's soft power is uh, probably a kind of a middle power um, status or, or close to a superpower. But again, this kind of a measurement uh, is very subjective. So we can have a debate on whether China is a great soft power.
also it depends on your goals. Um, sometimes a grid power may be um, great in terms of its material capacity, but it does not have this kind of ambition to be a grid power. Um, you may wonder who that guy is. Actually, it was the United States before um, World War I. Before World War I, the United States was already the world largest economy. It achieved that status uh, in 1890s. But it was quite uh, content uh, within its own um, home, uh, its home territory, so it was not overly ambitious. It certainly did not see itself as uh, a global power. Uh, and this matters because this um, kept the United States basically uh, within its own boundaries, uh, largely within its own boundaries. Also, there was this uh, the Monroe Doctrine uh, to expand into um, Latin America uh, in the Western Hemisphere. But overall, it was a regional grid power rather than a global grid power. And so that's why we need to study uh, not only this kind of a material um, measurements or indicators, but also the discourses of those relevant countries to see how they think they are and what their ambitions, what their strategies and objectives are. So if you look at China, the China dream, um, the Russia has this so-called Russian world um, slogan. Europe uh, once called itself normative power Europe. So they want to, um, to do some great things um, within their own capacity. And also we need to look at their strategies. Um, we, we, we just mentioned uh, the United States Monroe uh, Doctrine, um, which is basically America's is for the Americans. Uh, that's uh, kind of an exclusive um, a strategy to send a message to European powers, do not mess around in my backyard. So that will tell you something about its ambition. Uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, that's something, yeah, it's a strategy to, for China to expand its influence uh, in uh, the rest of the world. Then recently you have this uh, B3W. Uh, what is B3W? Have you uh, heard of that? Yeah, this, this came out of the recent G7 meeting uh, called Build. Uh, yeah, the G7's um, alternative uh, to the BRI. It's called uh, Build Back Better World, so B3W, to counter the BRI. Um, so the different strategies. Um, the, also, before that, you have the Blue Dot Network, um, also designed to counter China's uh, BRI initiative. And another less visible aspect of being a grid power is its resolve, its will to carry out uh, its commitment to pursue and use its power at its disposal. So you may have a grid power um, on paper, but if this this grid power is rarely committed to use that power, then it may not be a real grid power. So, so that's why the United States has uh, seen this kind of need to constantly demonstrate its resolve, um, its commitment, so uh, to to its allies, uh, to other regions. Um, so that's why it has used um, policy statements, used uh, interventions, uh, used the war on terror, et cetera, to send that message. And this is also when we yeah, understand agree power, uh, this obviously is also relevant. <laughs> okay, um, 
we can yeah talk about uh, who are uh, great powers today um, in seminars perhaps. Um, but certainly, this uh, we have more uh, consensus on who were the great powers in the past. Uh, certainly, those empires, um, the the territories uh, span um, in sometimes across continents. So certainly, they they were great powers, and particularly the British Empire, as you can see uh, on this map, uh, all those. Um, places with flags or once British colonies. So this was uh, the so-called empire where the sun never set. Um, then other, um, the Greek powers uh, over the centuries, uh, we are all familiar with, especially uh, if you have played um, those kind of uh, video games. Um, I'm not sure whether they how realistic they are, um, but certainly you get a sense of what a great power um, might behave, what uh, it entails. Now, uh, because this uh, topic is about great power relations in historical perspective, now we look at the historical legacies of great power relations. And the legacy, we know um, uh, many and uh, are very consequential. For example, um, peace, uh, although peace may not be a distinctive char characteristic of great power relations, but nonetheless, um, they can uh, brought about peace. For example, after World War II, uh, there was uh, this period of a long peace, so-called so long peace after um, 1945. Then also with great power uh, maneuvering, uh, you have coalitions, you have some formal alliances, uh, different powers um, as a result of that kind of relationship. The United States and Australian uh, Alliances, alliance uh, was uh, was an example of that. Um, then diplomacy. You may think that diplomacy certainly is not relate, uh, limited to great power relations, but many of our contemporary conventions uh, in regard to diplomacy uh, had a lot to do with the great power um, behavior in the past. So. Uh, the setup of the embassies, um, the, many of the conventions um, were laid at the foundation by, especially by the, uh, by the five group powers uh, we just mentioned uh, during the uh, 19th century. And of course, war uh, is an obvious um, part of uh, group power legacy. There have been so many wars as we uh, will uh, see uh, next and hegemonic war. These are the wars um, which have most um, consequential influence on world politics. Very often, this is the battle between the uh, who would become the top dog in the world. So that's called uh, hegemonic war. Um, the term Thucydides uh, trap, uh, you may have heard of this. Uh, this is a term coined by uh, Graham Allison uh, at Harvard University to refer to the um, historical uh, conflict between Athens and Sparta in ancient Greece. Um, so the author of that, uh, the Peloponnesian War, uh, is the Thucydides. So, Edison called this the Thucydides trap. Basically, um, this trap means when uh, the rise of Sparta inspired a fear uh, among Athens, and in order to prevent the dominance of Sparta, 
uh, Athens launched war against Sparta. So, so that's uh, this kind of uh, war between the dominant power and a rising challenger. According to Allison, this is kind of a trap that would uh, almost trap every um, pair of great powers uh, when there was this kind of a power transition between two, two countries. Uh, among 16 cases of such transition in the last 500 years, uh, 12 of, of them um, became violent conflict. So that's why he called this, uh, this kind of a Thucydides trap. And, and he used this term to uh, understand the current US-China relationship. China is now the rising power. The United States is the uh, current dominant power. So if history is any guide, uh, would uh, these two countries fall into that kind of a trap, become um, engaged uh, in a violent conflict? So that's something um, we need to uh, debate and talk about uh, throughout this trimester, I guess, uh, if not longer. And there's also other legacies for, um, for great powers um, that may have more relevance to our day-to-day -day life, if you like. Um, for example, the invention of a steamboat um, coming out of the uh, Britain, uh, the navigation technology, uh, during the year of the so-called the, the age of discovery, um, many of the explorers um, used this technology to uh, navigate around the world, to find new colonies, um, to engage in trade, etc. And so they basically revolutionized uh, the way we, uh, we transport, uh, we uh, go from place A to place B uh, across oceans and continents. And nuclear weapons uh, was uh, invented as a result of the World War um, II uh, conflict. And GPS, uh, AI, 5G, and space technology, uh, and many others, they are all um, not quite innocent, I guess, in many ways, uh, in their origin. Many of those um, inventions were driven by the need to compete for, for power. Um, we know computer, the first computer was, um, was made uh, in, in US military uh, and, and also the internet. Uh, initially, it was not uh, the, the global internet, it was the internet also uh, was a communication network uh, within the Pentagon. So some of those kind of military technologies uh, spilled over into civilian use. Um, so as you can see, our daily life uh, is deeply entangled uh, with the great power conflict and relationship. There are also some other legacies. Uh, the intellectually, um, we have used a lot of terms, uh, terminologies, concepts to understand the contemporary world, uh, drawing from past great power relationships. Uh, we just mentioned the, the uh, Peloponnesian War, uh, the term hegemony, Thucydides' uh, trap, uh, and the power transition, uh, the, this can, can be traced back to that historical period. Although those, uh, for example, power transition, cities trap, uh, those kind of terms were not used at that time. Uh, it was uh, used by contemporary scholars to um, understand that part of history. Uh, the Concert of Europe, uh, the 1815, uh, uh, this Congress of Vienna uh, as a starting point, gave us this kind of concept of the balance of power, uh, the Concert of Europe, and later on, uh, the Concert of Asia, Hugh White talked about. World War I um, was remarkable as 
the beginning of international relations as a discipline. Before then, there was no such uh, academic field as IR. So as you can see, IR was born with the war. And World War II also gave us this ongoing analogy of Nazi Germany, Hitler, appeasement, Munich moment, etc., for us to understand the contemporary um, IR. Uh, many people continue to uh, talk about whether we should appease uh, China, whether Xi Jinping is uh, contemporary Hitler, etc. So the his this kind of historical analogies are really powerful lenses for us to uh, look at the present world and even into the future. The Cold War, uh, again, uh, gives us uh, this kind of a notions of nuclear deterrence, um, mad uh, or mutually assured destruction, the bipolarity, uh, as two poles of the US and uh, the Soviet Union, uh, strategic triangle uh, that was between the US, uh, China and the Soviet Union, etc. So um, that's the intellectual legacy coming out of uh, past great power interactions. Um, there are also this uh, more social and civilizational uh, influences brought about by great power politics. Uh, indeed, uh, to start off with, uh, we have, yeah, you could say civilizations um, were born with this kind of uh, the rise and the fall of empires. So many civilizations were linked to ancient empires. And we also have colonialism, imperialism. Those uh, were practices of past uh, or even present uh, major powers, which helped redraw the world map. Uh, if you like, look at the maps of the Middle East, uh, Africa, those very straight line national boundaries, uh, they were the um, footprint and of past colonial um, legacies. And to this globalization as well, they were, yeah, they started because of this kind of colonial expansion, um, increasing need for transnational trade. Um, English as a lingua uh, franca uh, was also part of this uh, process. And uh, we mentioned the UN uh, is so closely linked to great power politics. Uh, you, you can notice the permanent uh, members of the Security Council, they were, they were great powers uh, at the time. And there are so many yeah, um, legacies uh, we, are, uh, we have been living with um, in, the, in the past, in the present, and even into the future. Now, the more recent uh, history, I think we, uh, we can go through this very quickly. Um, we know the end of the Cold War brought the, the so-called unipolar moment. Uh, for the United States. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, this bipolar structure uh, collapsed. Uh, there was only one pole left standing. That was the, the pole of the United States. So that's why it's called a unipolar uh, moment after the end of the Cold War. Um, so this unipolar moment gives the US the enormous confidence to promote its version of uh, economy, politics, uh, to uh, push free trade uh, around the world. And this also gives this kind of confidence for countries to trade with each other, to become more integrated uh, in this kind of regionalization process. Uh, a prime example of that has been the integration of the European Union uh, also recently, we have seen the reversal of that uh, with the um, 
the exit of Britain from the EU. And there um, is also this um, confidence to promote uh, liberal norms uh, to other parts of the world, uh, to promote democracy, to uh, practice this uh, R2P uh, norm, uh, the responsibility to, to protect, to engage in humanitarian intervention uh, in Kosovo, uh, in uh, other places. So, and now engaging China can also be seen in that context. Uh, China was uh, emerging, China was um, basically um, becoming uh, upcoming economic power, then there was this high hope that with the integration of China into the uh, world uh, economic system, China would become more uh, free and open and more democratic. So uh, until 9-11, uh, there was, yeah, the United States uh, soft power was at a very high point. And even 9-11, um, provide much sympathy for the rest of the world uh, as the slogan, we are all Americans tonight or today, uh, demonstrate the, this, uh, this was the uh, high, uh, high tide of US dominance in uh, world politics. Then uh, the rest of China seems to have gone astray. Uh, as we enter into this century. So previously, China was seen as an opportunity to trade with China, to, um, uh, make, uh, to make money out of the Chinese market, um, to cash, uh, capitalize on the expanding China's uh, middle, uh, middle class, the expanding middle class, et cetera. And also there was this hope that the Beijing Olympics in 2008 could transform China to open China, uh, just like the uh, Seoul Olympics did in 1988. But it turns out that China continued to rise uh, without showing much of this kind of uh, hoped transformation. So that um, basically uh, has brought us to the point now we are at, um, the increasing tension between the United States and China, because, um, because the, uh, the United States has become more uh, disillusioned uh, with the previous approach uh, of engagement with China. Now, people talk about uh, finally the United States uh, was waking, uh, waking up, to the reality, uh, to the competition from the Middle Kingdom. And so this uh, basically explains how uh, we, um, we have come to, uh, to this point as far as the US-China relations are concerned. So that's basically uh, a brief and uh, very, um, quick introduction to a very complex topic. Um, so I hope this will give you uh, some of the uh, a background uh, for you to understand the contemporary unfolding of the issues uh, now we are familiar today, for example, the trade war, the tech war, um, the conflict across a whole range of issues. Um, so, there's so much to talk about, and um, I look forward to, uh, to our uh, ongoing discussion uh, throughout this trimester. So thank you, everybody, and um, I wish you a very um, all the best uh, for this trimester. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.